Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start, Start saving, saving today. today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. <laughs> my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. die. I love his like life. A storybook story. Oh my I was obsessed <laughs> with that song as oh a kid. No. And I, I mean, we're going to start off this episode just saying that Jeff and I definitely got into an argument because, like, this is a dumb song. It's like, you never, <laughs> you will never say that about anything in Princess Bride in front of me ever. <laughs> um, and I'm not a monster. Just, this, just the part with the lyrics? Yeah, so the lyrics yeah. are a little, they are a little, okay. Oh, oh interesting. Luck. Talking bad about the movie immediately. So, Jamie, <laughs> what do you hate about the Princess Bride? How dare you? You know what? I will, all right, well, you want to you start this yeah, off? let's start with what we yeah. hate about it. As an adult and as a child still, I still don't like the R-O-U-S's. I'm not a fan. Because you grew up in New York. It may, is it's that what it true. is? That I was actually scared of rats. Probably. They're not that much smaller in New York than that. No, they really aren't, and they are just as aggressive in New York as well. And I, I but although I have more appreciation now because they're not CGI and because they are dudes in rat suits, <laughs> and that makes it a lot more fun. Yes, definitely. No, I love. I mean, that's great. That's I no CGI. I hate it. I hate no oh, fuck CGI. CGI. I. I hate. <laughs> Please, Let's get I it out. I don't enjoy that there. There's no fun female characters in it. But I will say, but Carol Kane. Yes, I mean more so like no fun warrior ladies. I but, understand. But I will say, in in it this is 1987, yeah, in this most generic like heterosis storyline, as as a girl, I still really connected to a lot of the the supporting characters and i think that it's easy to do that in this movie also robin wright's red dress makes up for her wow. not doing any wow action. gorgeous and I'm, I'm gonna say the thing i don't like about the movie is that it ends welcome Whoa. to our episode on the princess, princess bride, bride. Uh, i love how the framing device of this episode mirrors my relationship to the film as a young boy and i think many of us young boys felt this way we saw a movie titled the princess bride and felt like oh that's not that's for not me. for me and then you end Enter up watching it and very much like fred savage's character in the film you all uh, as as a young masculine child i was oh born i'm with sure you're still such penis. a masculine man yes. i was born with a yeah. penis the size of the, the adult i the, i had like a I baby's <laughs> eyeballs same with my penis man's <laughs> penis oh what did you and, name him <laughs> Uh, Ger Geronimo. And oh, that's kind of 
fun. He's always dropping bombs. Yeah, because I'd go drop that is, and then That's I'd, aggressive. You know, do that my not. diddle. Uh, but anyways, let's not talk about my sex life as a child. Let's talk about this film and how I had the same relationship to it. You st- but you start watching it, and oh, the sword fights, and oh, the... The many the wonderful humor, characters. The, the humor. And, yeah. And also the different fun characters. Mm-hmm. It, just the fact that there are such, it's such a wide range of characters mm-hmm. that now, especially as an adult, you look at it and you're like, man, they were having some fucking fun and, on and that also, set. Oh my God, totally. And th- I mean, I think you might have also read the book, the As You Wish. As You Wish. Which I um, already had in my audio audible books. Uh, I will say this, real quick, so. though, I'm not usually, I don't usually listen to audiobooks. Listen to As You Wish, Inconceivable Tales mm-hmm. from the Making of the Princess Bride. They all read their own stories in it. It is all like every person, that, uh, most of the people, uh, part of the cast that are still alive, are involved in the audiobook. It's awesome. It's so fun. Um, also, Carrie Elwes, he does like the over. I, I don't know what would you call it? like the narration yes. in between stuff and he does really good voice impressions yes he does of everybody <laughs> I'm in love with Carrie always I'm in oh love with everyone in this I gotta movie. say man watching that the the chemistry between him and Robin Wright like they're basically the same person their faces are the same I was thinking that they would be perfect for the Lannister twins if Game uh, of Thrones yeah. was shot in that yeah, time I would definitely but, watch that ooh, they're so fucking beautiful and. I would watch if they wanted to make a sex tape. Like I would pay for it. Also, talk about um, two good people. They were completely horny for each other throughout oh, yeah. the shooting of this, and you can see it in their eyes. Ooh. And neither one of them ever acted on it. They never said anything about it because weird. they are two professionals, and they knew uh, that it would be weird and bad. And then they sexier. found out in interviews later that both of them felt the same way about Whoa. each other. And doesn't that hurt your heart? And uh, watching him, and every time he looks at her and says, as you wish, you know that he wanted her. That just makes it sexier. I love, I love. I'm, just thinking about love. I'm sexualizing their relationship. That's what yes. I'm thinking about. Dog, it is such a great movie it also i was saying this to natalie right before we started recording um really shows where my sexual awakening came from if you look at you know that the fact that i was loving legolas and lance bass and i really think it all started with carrie always the beautiful in this lesbian movie. carrie always oh my god with his floppy with his floppy late 80s hair oh oh and all of his sword fighting oh Ooh, as you wish. But exact and you just yeah, there you said it. I was gonna also mention just that I, we watched that sword fight scene to for when we were studying choreograph fight choreography in oh, theater absolutely. class. It is such a classic sword fighting scene, and you don't get enough of those anymore. And and knowing mm-hmm. that they how much time they put into that fight mm-hmm. in order to pull it off, those actual actors that they not there was like a stunt person for one flip in that fight. And everything else was done by the actors themselves. And they I trained just, for months. Yeah, and they they kill it. It is like academic stuff at this point, textbook stuff at this mm-hmm. point. It is just this. Is, I like that Rob Reiner said that the Princess Bride is a celebration of storytelling. That is, it's fun because it's such a generalized statement, but it makes sense for this because, and it was difficult to publicize. It's difficult to nail down what this movie really is because it bridges so many. different different genres in one down to the fact that it's also a time it's a period piece that's set in mid in real life because the only thing that really sets it in the 80s are the scenes of the 
narrator throughout. And so everything else is like, that could be at any time period. And it is, uh, it's just, it's something that will, I will always put a smile on my face. It <laughs> is comfort food, the movie. I yes. mean, this is the ultimate sick day movie. And I mean, even you have a sick kid in the, like it's so perfect for, for all of that. It, it just, it, it is something you can always go back to and enjoy and throw on while you're, Putting a puzzle together or furiously uh, yeah. grabbing at yourself, maybe. Sure. I think it's, uh, I think it also, it really comes through <laughs> in this <both>. movie <laughs> that so many, that almost everyone involved was very respectful of the book that it came from. And also this movie in general, that everyone was trying to make the best movie they could. Jackie, I and we can kind of start getting into it at this point, and, I, and it all starts with the book. Haven't you, weren't you always trying to get me to read this book? Yes. Right? You love this book, I right? I love this book. Can you book. Tell, t- speak towards that when you read it and, and why why the book's so great? Um, I think that uh, it go, it's such a great back and forth, especially in the book. It's a little bit... The, the narrator character is a little bit meaner towards the little boy, and I think that I was into that, and he was always kind Grandpa? of just, yes, <laughs> he's always like, you know, essentially like calling him a little fat kid, and, oh. and I think that's why I weirdly identified with, with the book so much, but I love the idea because as a kid, I really thought that it was an abridged version of some other story that I had never read. And I yeah, was we'll like, talk what about is that the framing other? device for the book? That was it all is very lies. particular. Yes. Yeah. And I've never really looked into this before. And the fact that this movie was supposedly, it was almost made like six times yeah. before it actually got made. And it, it it's fun to read about how, like, how the generations of people that were also obsessed with this book, because I thought I was the only one. I thought it was mine. You know those things from a kid, oh, yeah. when you're just like, no one else knows about this, and no one else cares about this except for me. And um, obviously that is not the case. But Did you read the book before you saw the movie? No. I read the book afterwards. But that, because I saw the movie, because this movie came out the year I was born, 1987, what? And uh, I, so as kids, because also we, you know, I've got two older siblings. I don't know if you guys know this. And um, we, so all three of us, even though there's a 13 year age gap, all three of us were obsessed with this movie Mm. as kids. Because again, it has everything in it, and it does. It yeah. is. It's multi generational. Again, like you said, it's very timeless, except for the Fred Savage part. So it's easy for all people to sort of connect to it. I think. Yeah, dog. Absolutely. Let's talk about old, old Bill. Old Bill in nineteen seventy three. So. Our tale begins. begins, Yes, uh, 1973, this book was written by William Goldman. Goldman grew up in a Chicago suburb and went on to Oberlin College for a Bachelor of Arts. Then he went off to the Army to work as a clerk at the Pentagon due to his good typing skills. And after getting a Master of Arts in Columbia University in the mid-1950s, he lived with his brother, who was a playwright and screenwriter in NYC. And that is where he writes his first novel in less than three weeks called Temple of God and managed to get an agent through a mutual friend for this book. And that agent got the book published through Knopf as long as he doubled the length of it. Temple of God sells well enough in paper book 
To launch his career, Goldman said the book, like most of my books, got crucified in hardcover and was a very, very successful book in paperback. And kind of mirrors Princess Bride was super, not super successful in the theater, super successful on home video. Most of the books, Most of the books that I've written had their success in paperback, which is hilarious to me because, again, just like the movie. So he and his brother work on plays together through the 60s as he kept publishing novels as well. And his first screenplay writing gig was an adaptation of the short story Flowers for Algernon, which is the first, that was the first play I ever acted in, sixth grade. I was cast as an extra, but in middle school plays- Oh, you don't even get any touch? In middle school plays, all the extras got lines. Wait a second, you did Flowers for Algernon, the play in the sixth grade? In the sixth grade, it was sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. That's a choice to make. Sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, right? (laughs) Oh, you get the complexities. Oh, I see it. No, 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 sixth grade, that is where you do it. Well, my role was, was, there was a park scene, and- they had Were to you give the bench? <laughs> no, yeah, right. No, it was man on blanket. All the all the um, uh, extras got li- sympathy lines that they would just make up for us. And my line was, "Shut up and sit down, stupid." <laughs> That's, That's so perfect so, for you. That is perfect. <laughs> Which I said, I believe, to Algernon. You got typecast. I wish I could see the VHS of <laughs> oh, this performance. Does it exist? A little newsy cap. Does it I exist wore, at your parents' household? In um, they were very disappointed in me, my parents. For this <laughs> and that was not the last time, I'm sure. Jackie, I can't believe I'm mentioning this movie yet again. This is a sign that you and I and Natalie, we all need to sit down and watch this movie, especially if you haven't seen it before. His first original screenplay was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You know what? He's good at it. I'll give it to the. I'll, I will give this to him. He's pretty good at it. Which guy says Sundance Kid is so good, and we keep weirdly bringing it up. I forgot why it last came up. We've been tap dancing around it. I think that um, I guess that we should do it for an episode. Cool. All right. So he did. He did research for this for eight years to tell the story of the Wild West Outlaws, and this earned him an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. Goldman said, "I had two little daughters. I think they were seven and four at the time, and I said, I'll write you a story. What do you want it to be about?'" One of them said, a princess, and the other one, a bride. I said, that'll be the title! That'll be the title! Okay, I mean, that's a little bit cliche for some girls, I'm yes, just saying. but you know, they're seven and reductive. four, you okay, know? Okay, you know yeah. what? They need to figure Grow some up. Sh- yeah. <laughs> that's what we say. They, so it sounds like a seven and a four-year-old little girl needs to listen to some Bikini Kill. That's right, <laughs> that's right. Learn, start learning. Now, the full title, of course, is The Princess Bride, S. Morgenstern's classic tale of true love and high adventure, the good parts version, written by William Goldman, which, again, I was duped as a child, thinking that there was another book, which is exactly what he wanted you to think. And he started out actually writing it as a straight-up fantasy novel, but it was writer's block that leads him... Which started immediately, started in the second chapter, which leads him to the idea of writing this abridged novel, he said. And when that idea hit, everything changed. Tennessee Williams says there are three or four days when you are writing a play that the piece opens itself to you. Yeah. And the good parts of the yeah, play. Yeah, done that a couple oh, times. Right. Can we for a moment? Yeah, Natalie, done that a couple times. Natalie has a Joker smile I on her face right now. It's disgusting. Oh, yeah. 
And as you can hear, Jackie's just sort of becoming a She's full caveman She's over She's ready herself. for the story to unfold inside of me. And the good parts of the play are all from those days. Well, the Princess Bride opened itself to me. I never had a writing experience like it. I went back and wrote the chapter about Bill Goldman being at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and it all just came out. I never felt as strongly connected emotionally to any writing of mine in my life. It was totally new and satisfying, and it came at such a contrast to the world I had been doing in the films that I wanted to be a novelist again. So again, S. Morgenstern does not exist. He lied to us. The book doesn't <laughs> exist. I, you sound like you week. have some still some anger about it this. Maybe you need while. to work out in a therapy room. I remember going <laughs> to the library. I must have been 11. And I was asking and I didn't understand what they meant. I was like, no, the book, the book that this is based on. I'd like to read the rest of it. And um, I had to be schooled by a librarian, which is fine. That's what they're supposed to do. And I, I also enjoy that apparently in the uh introductions of the anniversary reprints of the princess bride goldman also goes into the details about these increasingly ludicrous fights with the s morgenstern estate and the family lawyers about him <laughs> writing the princess bride so he continued awesome. to unfold this non-story just in the introductions of the reprints but it also it goes to show that especially a dude that has written a bunch of other very amazing things that even he knows that this novel was to him the mo his most precious work to date. He says, the high point of my writing was I didn't know what I was doing and Wesley was in the machine and the bad guy came in and killed him. And until that moment, I never knew that was going to happen. And I got hysterical with tears. I've never had this before since. He explained of writing the book, after all these years of messing around with this, it's the only thing I ever did in my life that I thought was a successful day. Jesus. Wow. That I just, because I love that he just wrote it and just came out of him, but he's like, but I don't want him to die. <laughs> Wait, no, I don't want him to die. <laughs> and that the, to the point, which is why I love that they keep that in the movie of like, Wait a second, no, he can't be dead. Yeah, he right. can't be dead. I and I think that. we also love that so much too because I love Fred Savage's little um, slight New York accent because if you look at the video tapes of when Henry and I were kid, we talked like this. <laughs> and so we definitely talked a lot more Where like are Fred these Savage. Video tapes? Oh, they are buried. They are oh, buried. Man, I want to see those. Real oh, don't bad. worry, Natalie. One day we get to go and clean out mom's garage in the Florida <laughs> heat and we will find the tapes. I'm, not, I'm here for it. <laughs> oh, no. Now do we get to talk about my boyfriend? I Rob am. Rob Ryder? Yes. <laughs> I. Was, I read so many interviews of He's Rob Reiner, and I knew that he was the best, but until getting into these interviews, what a humble man. Oh my God, oh, you're getting like very aroused. I am. I think I'm in love with Rob Reiner. Yeah, well, paint the scene. Okay, Rob Reiner is spread out on the couch, half naked, maybe wearing a bouffant or something like that. You're <laughs> cooking him a meal. What are we making for him, and how are we having sex with him, Jack? Oh, hey, it's going to be definitely some sort of roast. Oh, whatever he wants. He wants potatoes. He wants sour cream on his potatoes. Oh, yeah. I love the sour cream. Mm. And, and it all starts, I think, because my family, of course, being from Queens, were obsessed with all in the family growing up. Mm. And his character was the young buck, of course, that had the more liberal ideals. And I think and with the long hair and the big mustache, weirdly enough, very into it as a mm. child. Interesting. And now as an adult reading through how... It, 
I didn't re- I have not read one bad thing about Rob Reiner. Everything nah. that I've read about him, everyone's just like, what an upstanding human being. What a good dude. What he's just apparently just like the dad of the set, he's even Mel from Brooks when he was young. He's best friend. I mean, how could he of be? Of course he's great. I want to do a whole thing on Rob Ryder. I love you. I love you. I think he's very old now. Yes. <laughs> oh, she'd lick those old balls and two of clicks of a I rat's would. tail. Absolutely. Of well, I either would. way, let's stop talking about this imagery. It's upsetting me. <laughs> Rob Ryder, born... In the Bronx, with an actress mother and a world-renowned comedian father, Carl Reiner. Best known for his work on Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows, which we've talked about, of course, uh, on the Mel Brooks, uh, I'm sorry, rather the Young Frankenstein episode. Yes. And the Dick Van Dyke show as well. He, uh, I believe, helped, he created that or co-created that. Either way, Reiner started out in acting in the 60s on TV shows like Batman and The Andy Griffin Show. He got into writing on the Smothers Brothers comedy hour. I love the Smothers Brothers. I love. I, love. I used to watch that as a kid, and I couldn't believe that that was controversial. That show was actually heavily controversial. There's a book I have about it. They were doing all this counterculture stuff that I didn't even realize because it's so cheesy as like a, you know. I mean, in most hindsight. comedy is if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. but it has to be controversial because that's the point of comedy is that it's always it, it's it should be boundaries binding. all the yes. time. And this was in 1968. They had a huge issue with the censors on the television network. It was this crazy battle for them to just get things on the air, and they were thrown off the air at some point. Either way, this is 1968, and his first writing partner is Steve Martin which is, I think is fantastic. Ooh. They were the two youngest writers Whoa. on the show. <laughs> Jackie's looking at her lips over here. <laughs> Ooh, they're my little roast. Ooh, yeah, so the two of them, you've got the two of them, you're in a ball pit at a shutdown McDonald's playhouse. Uh, it's after hours. You guys snuck in. Jackie, I just want them doing? to write me the best character part of all time. Really, That's so really, just I just want to... Trap them in the, you ball want pit. in the ball pit. Yes, in the ball pit. I'll be like, make me, give me what you have. Give me your juice. And no, I don't mean that juice. Would you kiss them? Yeah. <laughs> Only if they wanted right, me to. Right. Everybody was in agreement. Yes. Reiner was definitely a slice in the 1970s yes. when he became known for his role as Archie Bunker's liberal son-in-law in the show All in the Family. Now, he had said, just about everything I've learned in making films, I learned in the course of All in the Family. What audiences laugh at, how you structure a play, because to me, TV and film is theater. He got into directing in the 1980s, starting with the doc- mockumentary, rather, this is Spinal Tap, a oh, film which, that deserves an episode it, it all does. by itself. I just, we, again, I, almost every single person a part of this movie, all of the th- all of the things that we so are saying crazy. that are in italics in our notes, I want to do an episode on each one of these things. It's, yeah, Spinal, this is Spinal Tap, such a class. I mean, and, uh, Natalie, I'm sure you're also a fan. Oh, yeah. If, if anyone out there hasn't watched This is Spinal Tap, but you enjoy shows like The Office, you you should check this movie out because it's kind of the beginning of a lot. Of Goes those. up to 11. It's the blueprint for all of that stuff. And uh, it's, it, this review, it's just two words, shit sandwich. Uh, <laughs> 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 oh, I love oh, this is Tap.
Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today uh then the comedy romance film the sure thing which i need to watch with john john cusack right? amazing yes uh, it's great and lastly the coming of age film one of my favorites of all time stand by me i mean yeah. what a absolute beloved class i love how challenging that movie is to a child too yes. and oh, how yeah. important that kind of movie is for a kid and those for three sure. movies are Rob Reiner's first three movies that's crazy those three insane well, knock him out of the you think you're better than me I think I, I mean look at how happy he is <laughs> he's doing something right now, before you get into this um, next quote, Holden, I wanted to talk about the relationship between Carl Reiner and Rob Reiner. Now, obviously, this is very important. Carl Reiner is Carl Reiner. Everybody still, knows he's him. He's still alive, correct? He's like in his, his 90s. Yes. He's, yeah. uh, he's in his And he's written, I think he's written like 10 books in the past like 13 years. That's how you and, keep going. And so, oh yeah, it's Carl Reiner that he's best friends with Mel Brooks, not Rob. It's so hard to to distinguish the both of yeah, them. Yeah, they're which, all old as fuck. Gross. Yeah. Yes. Um, but also, Rob Reiner is friends with Mel Brooks as well because he grew up with them. Right now, uh, why did so originally Rob Reiner got the book The Princess Bride from his father? Now, why did Goldman send it to Carl Reiner in the first place? It's because they were friends. So legendary comedy writer and director Carl Reiner, whose play Something Different was included in Goldman's 1969 book The Season, A Candid Look at Broadway, the two men became friends. And when he finished writing The Princess Bride, he sent it to my dad, Rob Reiner remembers. So I read it and I thought, oh my God. And I know you've all had that experience when you're reading something and it's what you wish you could write. It's like somebody's in your head and voicing your feelings for you. I thought this was the most brilliant thing I'd ever read in my life. But his father, Carl Reiner, didn't really know what to do with it. Rob Reiner says, I don't even know if he ever read it or not, but he gave it to me because he knew I was such a big fan of Goldman's. So he had always tried to get his father's approval. Of course. And he says, I was always and still am much more serious minded and much more brooding and quiet and that kind of thing. My father's group of friends, Norman Lear included. So Norman Lear is the creator and executive producer of All in the Family, right? He did a bunch of these sitcoms. Norman Lear also is is one of the producers and gave the money to make Princess Bride. So Norman Lear is kind of his father figure as well as Mel Brooks and Larry Gelbart and Neil what Simon. What company? I mean, what an amazing Insane. company to have. And to, he's to right. And he says, bucking a father who loves me dearly, but also can't see what abilities I have and his being as visible as he was and as talented, as successful as he was. That's a real tough thing to get by when somebody who is as respected as much as my father doesn't give me the kind of encouragement that I might have to go ahead. That pretty much for most people, I think, would be enough to say, OK, I'm not going to be doing this now as my living, you know, because whatever it is you're going to do, you want your father or your parents to encourage it. Now, of course, my father's very proud of me. So this all comes from, so he gives him Carl Ryan the book. Carl Ryan says, no, thank you. Gives the book to his son. 
And that's when he reads the book when he was in his 20s. And Rob Reiner had this to say about reading the fucking book. Wow. <laughs> I read the book. That's not what he said. <laughs> when I was in my 20s, because I was a huge William Goldman fan. Then, after I had made a couple of pictures, Spinal Tap and The Sure Thing, I started thinking of The Princess Bride. I very naively thought I could make a movie. Then I discovered that Frank Watrafont had tried, and Norman Jewison had tried, and Robert Redford had been involved. One after the other. No studio wanted to make a movie of The Princess Bride. Nobody was interested in it. By the way, a lot of this comes from the EW oral history of The Princess Bride. Fantastic stuff. Check it out. Gotta give credit where credit is due. The uh, the first time that the movie was almost made, it was like to the point that it was right before getting the green light. It was in the early 80s, and it was Richard Lester who did A Hard Day's Night. He was, being, he was attached to direct it, and Christopher Reeve, at the height of his post-Superman popularity was going to play Wesley. Now mm. this th- th- it shows you what Hollywood bullshit politics are that it was the person that was the the go ahead of giving them the green light got fired over a weekend a bunch of yeah. people get fired yeah. and then the the whole thing went belly which up which is what happened yeah that is something that happens constantly you make it even with tv networks you make a deal with them and then the entire board of directors gets fired and then you just it's gone which mm-hmm. is why the so right before this author william goldman had sold the film rights to the princess bride to 20th century fox for half a million dollars and he also sold the right to write the screenplay himself so that's when we will see that after all of these things falling through, Robert Redford, John Borman, who did Excalibur, apparently, I don't even know how to say, Francois Truffaut, the French Francois New Wave director. That he was so upset about it that Goldman buys the rights back because he didn't trust anybody to do the film properly, which is almost unheard of. I'm going to say Christopher Reeve is not a pretty enough woman to play Dread Pirate Roberts. No, I, I think that he's uh, he's not light enough, I Mm-mm. feel like. Yeah, mm. he's, I mean, yeah. He's Gary a big Elvis, Hulko man. Yeah, exactly. Carrie Elvis is lithe. Ooh, he is lithe. Yes, lithe I want to have him like a little Ooh. snake Roberts. Oh, all right, so either way, while making Stand By Me, a Paramount Pictures executive talks to Rob Reiner about what his next movie would be, and he requests The Princess Bride, but was refused since other studios had tried and failed, as we just discussed such as 20th Century Fox paying Goldman $500,000, which we just discussed. All of that he's learning about on the set. Reiner said, nobody was interested in it. We kept tearing the budget down. I had to try to sell foreign rights and video rights. I had to cut my salary. I had to cut the cast's salaries. It was crazy. I think we had like $16 million, which even at that time wasn't very much. In the script, it said, the army of Florin. I had seven people in the army of <laughs> And also it goes to show of why Rob Reiner cast his friends he's mm-hmm. like he's best friends with billy crystal he's best friends with chris guest then he's just like can you guys like come and do just this do movie it for really cheap <laughs> yeah for like almost nothing and that's and, what yeah. how he got so bit like and in listening to them talk about it and it is such a family-based set we will get into that they all immediately mm-hmm. became family because none of them were making really any money off and they of were right. shooting out in the middle of nowhere for yes. a lot of it but it's just it's just you just have to be lucky enough that all of your close friends are world-class actors who will then come and to so, your movie. And by the way, your 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 writer of the source material, this is so rare, has already won an Oscar, right? I believe yeah. or at least nominated 
for his screenplay writing. So it's, of course, Reiner and Goldman work very closely together on the screenplay, and it shows. It is a great screenplay. Really, really fun. I love their relationship, and apparently when William Goldman passed, uh, Rob Reiner had put out a tweet that said, Losing Bill Goldman made me cry. My favorite book of all time is The Princess Bride. I was honored he allowed me to make it into a movie. I visited with him last Saturday. He was very weak, but his mind still had the Goldman edge. I told him I loved him. He smiled and said, fuck you. <laughs> and I just like, that's just such a good Aww. little tag of what their relationship yeah. was. <laughs> love it. Love it. Uh, uh, all right. This is where I get into casting. And much like Young Frankenstein and Clueless, so these other movies, it is such like a laundry list of names. And I'll try to be as brief as possible because there's so much to get through when it comes to these but people. But some of the stories are great that I pulled from As You Wish mm. um, awesome. about them getting this insane cast together. Uh, it is just incredible. Let's start with Car uh, Carrie Elways, which is the one of the, very early on they Reiner wanted Carrie How soft to do, do you the, think his hair is? How soft? Hmm. Ooh, How you soft? Just lay, you could lay on it. Just oh, yeah. <laughs> nestle in and go yeah, to sleep. I want to shave them, put it inside of my pillows. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's it. Tie up little knots it. and tie little doll heads to it. Yeah, of course. You know what, Wallace Shawn, do you want to kiss me? Mm, so Mr. Elways uh, gets the role of Wesley very early on based on his performance in a film called Lady Jane. Ladies, it sounds like you guys might need to check out Lady Jane. Have you I, not already? I have, actually. And I love that Rob Reiner um, said about the movie, he said, that picture wasn't a comedy. I thought he certainly looks right. He resembles a young Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Oh, yeah. And he's so handsome and a terrific actor, but I didn't know if he was funny. And this is a very specialized kind of acting where you have to be very real and earnest, but at the same time, there's a slight tongue-in-cheek thing happening, mm -hmm. which, as we know, he definitely understands. And then, Ooh, 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 and then <laughs> reprises it and does it ten times more in Robin Hood Men in Tights. Uh, yes. Yes. Which is my, probably my favorite Mel Brooks movie. Yes. Hell yeah. So, uh, yes, Carrie Elways came from an artistic family with members already in the film business. He went to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, Arts before moving to the U.S. to study acting at Sarah Lawrence College, as well as the Actors Studio and the Lee Strasberg Theater. So all the same places I guess everybody he's good studied, who was in Young Frankenstein, uh, and Film Institute. Uh, and in the early 80s, studied under Al Pacino's mentor, Charlie Lawton. But he made his acting debut in the British historical drama film Another Country before getting the role of Guilford Guilford Dudley in Lady Jane, acting across from a very young Helena Bonham Carter, by the way. And that oh. is, of course, what catches Reiner's eye. It was uh, much more difficult, however, for them to find their buttercup. Now, what I do love, too, is that they, what, essentially what Rob Reiner did was to convince people to be in this movie. So when <laughs> Carrie always gets the ask that they're like, the director wants to come out and meet you because he was in Berlin shooting something at the time. And Carrie always loved the book, The Princess mm -hmm. Bride. So when he sits down with Rob Reiner and, uh, and his buddy, they're sitting down in Berlin. And, you know, like I said, Rob Reiner was nervous he wouldn't be funny. So they ended up joking around about SNL for like an hour and a half. He And then Rob Reiner gives him one of Wesley's monologues. But Wesley, but Carrie always knew the tone and knew exactly what he wanted. He did half of the monologue. And Rob Reiner's like, stop, you're good. You got <laughs> it. And then Rob and Carrie always like, do you want to go like 
get a drink or something and they're like no no we're getting on a plane to Paris we gotta go meet Andre the Giant and so in my <laughs> brain it was just them going from place to place like it made me think of like the Muppets yeah, I'm just yeah, like yeah. picking them up as they go along I'm like of course I want to be a part of your merry band of gentlemen That's I don't think great. it's that far off from the truth I don't think so <laughs> I want that life Ugh, please Buttercup much more difficult for them to find Goldman said we had a terrible trouble finding a Buttercup because she had to be so beautiful. We had all kinds of pretty girls come in, but they weren't this staggering thing. Robin Wright was raised in San Diego and got into modeling at the young age of 14. She got into acting at 18 on the daytime soap opera Santa Barbara. This was her first feature film, but they do speak about how being in a soap opera, you really learn a lot about acting very fast because of the consistency of the work. Oh, yeah. It's like a, it's like a nine to five acting job. Yeah. No, yeah. It says that in the credits uh, at the end. And I actually didn't realize that at the time. But it says, yeah. And introducing Robin Wright, yes. who is a literal goddess. Yes. Yeah. And especially with this quote. So they also did have a casting director, Jane Jenkins, who says that it was, this was still her favorite movie to cast. And so when Robin Wright came in in the initial read, uh, she was fine. But in the set, and when the callback, they asked her to do a British accent, and her because her stepfather is British, she nails it. So when she went to go meet Rob Reiner and Goldman for the first time, that's when it felt like fate, because Jane Jenkins explained that the team made arrangements to meet at the director's house that weekend. She says, "I will never forget this for as long as I live." The doorbell rang. Rob went to the door, and literally, as he opened the door. Wright was standing there in this little white summer dress with her long blonde hair, and she had a halo from the sun. She was backlit by God. And Bill <laughs> Goldman looked across the room at her, and he said, well, that's what I wrote. It was the most perfect thing. <laughs> that's amazing. Chris Sanderson, who played Prince Humperdinck, said, Robin always had a very strong sense of herself. Uh, uh, Sarandon, Chris Sarandon. Oh, did I, what did I say? Sanderson. 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 It's uh, Susan Sarandon's ex-husband, actually. Oh, interesting. I was wondering if there was any relation. Great. Chris Sarandon. Oh, man. Sarandon. He has such a great bitch face. I know. That's yeah. what I was saying to Henry last night when we were watching it. I was like, it must kind of, it's like a double-edged sword of having a punchable face because then you have to play that part, but then you, at least you get right. cast all the time. Yes. Part. All the time. Because people need that. Yeah. Sarandon. Uh, Chris Sarandon, who played Prince Humperdinck, said, Robin always had a very strong sense of herself, and yet there was always a sense of mystery about her as well. I'm sure everybody fell a little bit in love with Robin on the shoot, whether we were attached or not. Yeah. She, Especially I Carrie Elwes. Oh, my God. Ugh. They loved each other. Sarandon had done a bunch of Broadway TV and film before The Princess Bride, including as Dr. Tom Halverson in The Guiding Light and Al Pacino's transgender wife in Dog Day Afternoon. He keeps coming up in the show for no reason. What, Al Pacino? Yeah, Al Pacino, weirdly, keeps coming oh, out. Oh, 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 my... Oh, All right. cocaine. Whoa. <laughs> I know, guys, it's me. It's not Al Pacino, oh it's me. Oh, my gosh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for dispelling the rumors that I was doing a podcast with Al Pacino. Let's can we talk about Mandy Patinkin for the love of the Lord. I talk about another one. I talk about another one that if give me, if he said... Jackie, I want you to be with me for the rest of my life. However, we got to go live in Antarctica. I say, well, you, I get to putting furs on me because I'm wearing a seal. And that's what I'm going to say. And I love seals. And I would wear a seal for him if he asked me to. <laughs> or even Good if he didn't Lord. ask you to. If he didn't ask me to. If he just, if he just, 
You know, just a suit. If he said, come, Jackie, you said, I'll put a seal on it. I'll put a seal on it, yes. (laughs) Manny Patinkin said, the moment I read the script, I loved the part of Inigo Montoya. That character just spoke to me profoundly. I had lost my own father. He died at 53 years old from from pancreatic cancer in 1972. I didn't think about it consciously, but I think that there was a part of me that thought, if I get that man in black, my father will come back. I talked to my dad all the time during filming, and it was very healing for me. What a beautiful oh, quote! Geez. I and just like in reading through too, where part of where he put his fierceness of studying the sword fighting before, and just thinking that in his brain he really did. And he even says like, I know this kind of sounds silly, but his father died of cancer, and he's like, when I was fighting the six fingered man, I was fighting his cancer in Aww. my head when I said. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. He's like, I was in that moment to the point that apparently Christopher Guest was terrified of him. Because Christopher <laughs> Guest is like, I know that you are you I'm are into it. I'm, I'm not, not the cancer. cancer. I love you. We are friends. Uh, because he just, um, he got that into it. Mandy Patinkin went to Juilliard and started out in musical theater, playing Che in Evita, I believe in the first Broadway run, for which he won a Tony Award in 1980. He then jumped to film with Yentl and Ragtime before doing uh, the role of Vanego Montoya. I love to, if you watch any videos of him currently, there's this one interview, and he was being interviewed on a morning show, and all of a sudden, the dude that was interviewing him, one of them, got up, and he's like, I'm so sorry, uh, I have to go. And he's like, is everything okay? Is everything all right? And he's like, my wife, she's about to give birth. I have to get to the hospital. And he just goes, muzzle, muzzle, oh my God, what are we doing here? Go, get out of here. And then the guy goes, and he's like, I don't want to talk about the movie. I want to. He's like, what a beautiful day. What a beautiful day for a baby to come into this world. Ah, Mazel, all I'm thinking about is how his life is going to change. That his life is going to change for the better. For the rest of his life, he's going to look at that kid and he's like just going on and on. And I just, I love Mandy Patinkin so much. Isn't he also um, being super active with the uh, yeah, yeah. Black Lives Matter? Lexi, oh, yes. Lexi pointed me to his Twitter. Every day he's doing Every massive day. donations to a Black Lives Matter campaign. Uh, it's pretty amazing. So Every check day. out him on Twitter. It's very heartwarming on uh, over there. Uh, can we talk about Wallace Shawn? I'll do a quote in his own voice. I was not the first person they wanted for the part. <laughs> Unfortunately, my agent uh, at that time believed that it would be helpful for me to know who they actually wanted. So he told me it was Danny DeVito. Looking Aww. back on it, it didn't help. Danny is inimitable. <laughs> Each scene we did, I pictured how he would have done it, and I knew More less. I could never possibly have done it uh, to, done it the way he could have done it. It made it challenging. It, I mentioned it to Danny since. I said, you know, of Thanks. everything that I have ever done since birth, the thing that is most well known is a part I had because you were unavailable. <laughs> this is also, throughout the book, he talks about how nobody wanted him, but everybody did. They had to convince him. him to play the part. He's it's so ridiculous good. that he's he so insecure so about it. But he was so nervous about it. But he, it's so, what, what I love about that part is he was really, he didn't really necessarily understand the comedic part that they were asking him to do. So he was just very uncomfortable being like, I can't do a Sicilian accent. And Rob Reiner's like, no, I just want you to talk like yourself. Just do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is makes it so funny because why is this guy from like Brooklyn 
in this story, but it, it's so perfect. <laughs> well, it like, especially the fact that he is playing Vizidi the Sicilian, the Sicilian, the man of dizzying intellect, which also makes sense. It actually makes even more sense to Danny DeVito, which I wish he could have just like realized. He has a history degree from Harvard and I, studied philosophy and economics at Oxford. Yeah, I love that he initially planned to be a diplomat, but ended up just falling into playwriting in NYC, which led him to co-writing and starring in My Dinner with Andre, which is like now a revered film, a classic film, uh, alongside his collaborator Andre Gregory. His film debut, however, was an, as Diane Keaton's ex-boyfriend in Woody Allen's Manhattan in one of my favorite bits Definitely in a Woody Allen movie, but even maybe kind of of all time. The whole movie, she keeps mentioning how she has this ex-boyfriend that was just this sexual maniac, this dynamo that just is like so mind-blowingly amazing in bed. It's just unbelievable. And then when Woody Allen finally meets him in person, it's Wallace Shawn. And he's like, and he's like, what? This, this guy? guy? <laughs> and it's so funny. Yeah. Wallace Shawn is always having to play like the the character or the it, like does this he has the same part in sex in the city pretty much at yeah. the end of the <laughs> series where she he's introduced to candace bergen and she's just like what is this disgusting troll but then she <laughs> falls in love with him yeah and one the of the best. things from shooting that i did want to bring up because i know that we're going to talk about andre the giant and i uh uh andre I love him. Um, Do you think he said, oh, this is my dinner with Andre the Giant? Yeah, maybe he did. <laughs> I hope that he did. say it. Apparently, Wallace Shawn truly, absolutely terrified of heights. And um, so during the cliff climbing sequence, he was having a lot of problems. So Mandy Patinkin said he was terrified of shooting the scene of climbing the 35-foot cliffs with Robin Wright and, uh, and now deceased co-star Andre the Giant. The actor's portion of the stunt was done very safely, of course. The cliffs were made of rubber. Andre was raised by a forklift, and the trio he was quote-unquote carrying were sitting on a custom-made three-pronged bicycle seat. He says, Wally was very nervous that day that he was going to ruin the day's shooting because of his fear of heights. And there he was on this, in this medieval snuggly on Andre's stomach, and he was really quite frightened. And Andre, in his inevitable beauty, just patted him on his head and on his back, and he said, don't worry, I'll take care of you. <laughs> How adorable so is that? Also, Wallace Shawn, chill out, man. You're not ruining anything. He's very, he's, he's, that's why he was so good as Vizzini, though. Oh, yeah. Anxiety ridden. So great. Goldman had always wanted Andre the Giant to play Fezzik. Reiner oh. said, I met him at a bar in Paris. Literally, there's a landmass sitting on a bar stool. I brought him up to the hotel room to audition him. He read his three page, this three-page scene, and I couldn't understand one word he said. I go, oh my God, what am I going to do? He's perfect physically for the part, but I can't understand him. So I recorded his entire part on tape, exactly how I wanted him to do it, and he studied the tape. He got pretty good. Yeah, because he, he is um, he's from France. He's French, so he was nervous about his ability to say say the Englishes. Say the Englishes, that's what they say. Um, I implore you to watch Andre the Giant, the documentary. Yes, it's so that is good. on HBO. It, it opened my eyes to so much about him. And I do love this line that Jane Jaggett's, the casting director, did say, if you didn't have to duck in the doorway of my office, there was no need for you to be there in talking about the auditioning for Andre the Giant because they originally wanted him. Fezzik, yeah. He was supposed to do this wrestling event that they had paid him $5 million to do. Ooh. And so when they called his agents about it, and like, are you going to pay him $5 million? No. 
then he's busy. So they brought in Arnold Schwarzenegger because they really want Arnold Schwarzenegger to do it then since they couldn't get Andre the Giant, even though that's all Rob Reiner wanted. And then Arnold Schwarzenegger denied the part. And then apparently since he had to get his back surgery... He couldn't do the fight, which is why Andre the Giant's like, I guess I'll do your movie. Yeah, I'll do it, boss. That's what he, he called <laughs> he everybody. He called everybody on. boss. Um, I think t- they were saying in the book t- as, as a means to disarm people so that they weren't intimidated by him to show that he was a gentle giant. And mm. that's what he said when asked about his favorite part of shooting. Andre said, nobody looks at me. Being just another actor on a set full of quirky talent where no one made issue of his height made the giant feel like he fit right in for once. Mm. Watch the documentary. You will cry. Oh, multiple times. Elwes Elwes said he had this that thing you come across with people who are terminally ill where they have a secret most of us don't get. They understand that life is precious and you have to cherish every moment. He really imparted that to me. He was so filled with life and fun and so sweet, such a truly gentle soul. I mean, for a guy who could crush you like swatting a mosquito, he was so incredibly gentle. I made him tell me his whole uh, his whole life story, which is crazy, by the way. He grew up in a little village in France. He couldn't fit into the school bus even when he was 12. And the only person in the village who had a convertible who could drive him to school was Samuel Beckett, which I think is another movie waiting for Andre. <laughs> <laughs> I love their friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, he and Carrie always continued their friendship after the shooting this movie was over and they would go out getting hammered in New York. Uh-huh. And imagine how much, I think there is some, is there a story about how many beers he had to drink? It's 100 crazy. beers in a single yeah. sitting. He said his daily consumption consisted of an entire case of beer, three bottles of wine and two bottles of brandy. Andy. And apparently afterwards, Carrie always said they were getting hammered in New York. And he's like, do you notice this dude that keeps following us? And he goes, yeah, that's an <laughs> undercover cop. And he's like, why? Why are we being followed? And he's like, ah, last time I was in New York, I got so drunk I fell over and I hurt somebody. So now they do it for insurance purposes. <laughs> <laughs> but he was in really bad health during this movie. And yes. like he couldn't do the wrestling match because of his back, but he was also, I mean, uh, Dianism is a really, um, you have a lot of health problems. And he like Because to your drink organs and, don't stop growing. Yeah, and and so like a lot of the scenes where he was doing catching or having people on his back and stuff, he really couldn't Even do that, it. even that final scene when they're riding on horseback, like I, one unfortunate thing is knowing what I know now, it's like kind of, it's almost painful to watch him and a lot, even that he final riding like away so much on pain. horseback scene, I'm just like, Ugh, I know that really hurts. Well, a lot of it him. is there's a lot of doubles for him, um, including uh-huh. and in if you see the wide shots, you can definitely tell it's he's a double. Much, he's a normal he's, size. You're not normal. He's a he's a regular size person. Yes. Whenever he's doing the car- like him and Carrie Elwes are doing their fight scene, and um, also that scene where he catches Princess Buttercup was a huge problem for him. Like it really hurt him. Yes. Yeah. So they had to lower her down on wires. Yeah. yeah. As we said, he grew up in France, but he got into professional wrestling at the age of 18 in Paris and started getting a name for himself in Eastern Europe, as well as Australia, New Zealand, and Africa, and then Japan, where he was billed as Monster Rusimov. Rusimov was his last name. Wrestling in Canada got the attention of Vince McMahon Sr. and his Worldwide Wrestling Federation and had him change his name to Andre the Giant. And quickly, he became a fan favorite in the 1970s and 80s. Boo, and- Vince McMahon. Boo. <laughs> boo. Watch the doc. Boo. I, was, I love that boo woman in the movie, by the way. And Carol Kane. Henry and I said we should, uh, we want to start an app where you can send that woman to people's houses who you want to shame. <laughs> 
Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. It was Christopher Guest who played Count Tyrone Rugen. He studied acting at Tisch School of the Arts, then performed in theater in NYC, as well as on the National Lampoon Radio Hour, which we talked about during our Gilda Radner episode, which led to getting cast as Nigel Tufnell in This Is Spinal Tap, a role he would become quite famous for, probably the first role he became famous for. Uh, And he's great in this film as super evil dude. Uh, Also, you have Billy Crystal who says, Rob said, you could have fun with this. Do you want to do it? I said, you bet. It was such a perfect t- little cameo to play. I met with my makeup artist, Peter Montagna, who had uh, done all these characters with me on Saturday Night Live. And I said, I want him to look like a cross between my grandmother and baseball legend Casey Stengel. Also, look up Makeup's a picture so of Casey Stengel. He looks just like him. It's insane. He said that... Um, for three days straight and ten hours a day, this is what Carrie always said in his book. Billy, uh, oh, this is talking about the actual scene that they did together. That they did together. Billy improvised 13th century period jokes, never saying the same thing or the same line twice. And apparently, there's so many jokes that were not fit for a family-friendly <laughs> film that were all blue jokes. And that is how, which I think that most people have heard this story, that's how Mandy Patinkin actually hurt himself on set was because he couldn't stop laughing bruised during this scene that he bruised a rib. <laughs> that, that he was being so disgusting with his, I love that it too, it's 13th century humor, that almost everything that but they say- with the New York accent, which yes, is hilarious. is improvised. And so their bromance goes back to all in the family because Billy Crystal was brought on to do a bit part uh, because Norman Lear had seen him at the comedy store and they just immediately hit it off. I think I'd want to do a whole episode just on their love for each other because apparently (laughs) Billy Crystal and Rob Reiner are just bosom buddies. And that makes me smile. Crystal and Christopher Guest were actually classmates at NYU. Crystal also studied at the HB Studio, which we mentioned in our Young and Frankenstein episode, and was in a comedy trio in NYC, and later struck out on his own in stand-up. Crystal became known for his characters and impressions, performing on SNL and The Tonight Show, as well as playing Jody Dallas on Soap, one of the first unambiguous gay characters on an American television series. His first film role, another crossover for this episode, was in Joan Rivers' Rabbit Test, which we talked about on the Joan Rivers episode, and he made a brief appearance in This Is Spinal Tap as well. Of course, he has a, a, a supporting role for his cameo, one of a the not complete without mentioning Carol Kane, the oh. wonderful Carol Kane. I just God, love, I her love so Carol much. Kane. God, she played great. Valerie, the wife of Miracle Max, who is Billy Crystal's character. Kane became known for her roles in films such as Dog Day Afternoon, which is the second time I'm mentioning that. Annie Hall and her role as the wife of Andy Kaufman's Latka in the TV series Taxi. And obviously Adam's family values. Yes. yes. Her most famous role. Kane said. 
Billy came over to my apartment in Los Angeles and we took the book and underlined things and made up little, a little more backstory for ourselves. We added our own twists and turns and stuff that would amuse us because there's supposed to be a long history. Who knows how many hundreds of years Max and Valerie have been together, which is, that's just so fun to think about. Like, how fun would that be to be at a fly in the wall while Carol I'm Kane and Billy Crystal? <laughs> and, and, and especially that Rob Reiner had essentially said to both of them, you're in the rubber, so do what you want. Talking about because they had to wait for so long to get all the makeup put well, on. Well, it is such a little encapsulated sequence. It, it, I, I bet you they just had free reign. Like, they kind of just got to do whatever they wanted in that oh, little room. Oh, yeah. Ha- and you it, just said, have fun storming the castle. That was improvised. Have fun as storming was, the castle. As was, don't go swimming for an hour, a good hour, a lot of stuff. They just let them go an MLT, bananas. A little mutton, lettuce, and tomato. <laughs> <laughs> they had to, didn't they have to replace Elway's on the bed with a body? double because he was laughing so hard? Yes, and they also, uh, Rob Reiner kept having to also leave the set because he kept ruining takes because (laughs) they were laughing so hard. But also what I love is that watching it now, that's the same thing like you had just said, Holden. Watching it now, I'm like, man, what I would give to hear the blue shit he was actually saying. That apparently he did this long rant about how his nephew got caught with a sheep, like while he's trying (laughs) to like wait, but like he needs more time. So he's just riffing about what his nephew did with the sheep and how he felt about it and then what he did with the (laughs) sheep. And then like this whole like 10 minute monologue about sheep fucking. (laughs) And that didn't make it, huh? No, surprisingly. And I was gonna say, I, I mean, I feel like that's the cast that I covered. There's others, of course. This is a big cast film. Those are the I mean, but I, I, yeah, that's that's my coverage of our cast. I wanted to talk about that sword fighting, y'all. Please. Oh, quickly, can I give an honorable mention Please. to the, the albino guy? Um, yeah, yeah. I did, like again, didn't mention him because I was just like there was so much. We're just to cover, doing the big ones. Yeah, he's that's fantastic. He's so good. Crazy. Yeah, uh, I believe that is his name. He's fucking hilarious. Uh, I briefly mentioned the Boo Witch lady in the dream, who's one of my favorites ever, and I want somebody to follow me around and, and do that. Boo. To like. Oh no, Peter <laughs> Cook was the um, Mowage. Oh, Ma- again, him, Mary. Yeah, yeah, he's amazing. Today. Also, yeah. the um, the we were both laughing a lot last night at the red-haired um, like minion guy of Prince Humperdinck. He's great uh-huh. in it. He's with great. one who's holding the key. There's yeah. everybody in the movie is just so fucking good. All those little parts, it really make the whole thing so fantastic. Mel Smith is the person that plays the albino. Yeah, he's <laughs> just mad. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the sword fighting. It is such a big part of this film. Again, like studied in classes and whatnot. The fight between Wesley and Inigo is described in the script simply as the greatest sword fight in modern times. That's Gloves. what they had to recreate. Patinkin said, I knew that my job was to become the world's greatest sword fighter. I trained for about two months in New York, and then we went to London, and Carrie and I trained every day that we weren't shooting for four months. There were no stuntmen involved in any of the sword fights except for one flip in the air, which is incredible. Well, yeah, there's a couple of scenes that are obviously gymnasts, but the rest of it. Elway said, Mandy and I got so good at both left and right-handed fencing that by the time we showed the sequence to Rob, we'd gotten too fast, and it and the fight was over very quickly in a couple of minutes. Rob went, that's it? You guys have to go back and add some more. I love it. So to help the actors appear ambidextrous, because both of them start off fighting with their left hand, and then they go, hey, you know, left-handed. Ah, left-handed. Um, apparently, 
Two identical but mirrored sets were constructed to make it appear that the pair were just as good with their other hand. So the entire time, so they did only study with their right hand because both of them oh, are right-handed okay. actors. So, but that's to to the point that not only they had studied studied for like six months, as well as built two separate sets to make it the greatest sword fight of all time. Again, Rob Reiner was so red he wanted to make this movie as perfect as possible according to the book i love it too that in talking about the uh the christopher guest this the fight with the six-fingered man as well i I said this earlier that christopher guest was actually scared of mandy patinkin but what i do love this and it makes me think of all the times on set and in thinking about transferring over to um like when you're doing comedy on stage versus comedy on a camera Apparently, Christopher Guest said, I was so into it, I was making the sound of the sword hitting the other sword. I was doing the chink, 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 <laughs> because that's what you do when you're a kid. And Rob said, cut, you don't need to do that. We're going to put in the sound of the sword, swords later. Sword <laughs> so funny. There, by the way, shout outs to their instructors, Bob Anderson and Peter Diamond, who both worked with actors for the original Star Wars trilogy, which mm-hmm. I think was a real, one of the cooler facts that I learned Dude. from this. Also, Christopher Guest, I guess, was stabbed in the thigh during rehearsal. He got the crap beaten out of him in this he movie. Did. And he did. Oh, I'm sorry. Actually, it. no, it was Christopher Guest who would later beat the crap out of Elways with the butt of his sword. Yes, and, and he actually knocks him actually out. Actually knocks him out when he hits him with the butt of his sword. And now I can't see that scene in the same way anymore. <laughs> um, but let's talk about the filming, uh, sword fighting aside. The whole thing was shot around Great Britain and Ireland, including the Brunham beaches and other fantastic places i love the scenery of this film it is i'd love so to go i'd love to do a princess bride like uh location mm-hmm. trip that'd be I, fun as shit and i and especially just even listening to this, reminiscing about when they were shooting in london uh so rob Reiner sat down for this interview talking to a dude that was british and he goes hi you know i spent some time in london when i was making the princess bride and uh he said says reiner before he even sat down looking as content as a bear recalling an especially satisfying honeypot he says <laughs> that was a great experience we were shooting in haddon hall which was built in 1086 and i'm sitting there with chris guest and mandy patinkin and we start singing that old rock and roll song, What's Your Name? Uh, you know, what's your name, little girl? Little girl. What's your name? And he says, we were singing What's Your Name in three-part harmony in this echoey old hall. I'm thinking, a thousand years ago, did anybody ever think we would be here doing this? It was such a surreal moment. Guest said, every day was really movie camp. There are a lot of times when you're on a movie on location and you're kind of a loner and you stay in your room. This was an uncommonly friendly gang of people. And Reiner even rented a house in England near the sites uh, of shooting to have folks over for meals and get-togethers, which created this family-style atmosphere. Everybody just hanging out. Yes, Robin Wright said, you know, we would go over to Rob's house, they they would cook dinner, and somebody would pull out a guitar and start singing songs. Rob would sing. It was a real family, and we laughed so much. In the book, according to Gary Elwes, they did that because... The food was really bad where they were because they were out in the middle of like you know the the countryside. So Rob Reiner uh, got a hibachi and he would make hot dogs and hamburgers yeah. for everybody. Food for That's everybody, great. and I love. I have got some quotes just in general as Rob Reiner as a director on set. And Billy Crystal said the only problem with Rob is that he's too good of an audience, so he laughs and no ruin takes. You have to tell him go home. You'll see it tomorrow. He has the greatest ear for comedy of any director I've ever worked with. Mandy Patinkin said. 
He's a real actor's director. He's an actor and he loves actors. He takes care of you. Also, the confidence that he gives you where you feel like you can try anything. There's nothing you wouldn't try that he suggested. It's an incredible trust. And he says, I'll never forget. Rob said to me, what I really want the actors to do in this movie is as though they're holding their card, their poker cards in their hand, but they're just hiding one card. And the one card was the twinkle in their eye. The one card was the fun they knew, was underneath everything they were saying. And I never forgot that image, that there was always a little secret, and that secret was the fun. Yeah, whatever. That's kind of weird. I like it. I like that there was a... T- because even in such a... Because it does weirdly, though, make sense. You look at it, and they're all acting it so seriously, but in such a way that you know that it's funny. Down, Except for mm. that scene, especially between Mandy Patinkin and Christopher Guest because it makes me think like it, it did remind me I remember when I mean not to bring this up right now but we're talking about the actual book Uh-oh. and not the person like it, like the not my daughter you bitch oh, in yeah. Harry Potter with Mrs. Weasley yes that that's the only curse in the entire movie mm-hmm. and that moment is so upsetting and it's so satisfying. Oh yeah, definitely it's cathartic. That you needed that that wink of fun, but you also needed that seriousness as well. You needed a real actor. Yeah. Two real actors to be able to do that. No, but that is I really feel like that's one of the over uh, themes that really makes this movie good for audiences to watch is the resilience in the characters. Like that character was stabbed in the gut and he just getting the more he wants to to avenge his father the more he wakes himself back up name is Inigo Montoya you killed my father prepare to die it's very inspiring and passionate also I wanted to mention quickly about that scene I thought maybe that that was a set because the the room is so cool and interesting but that's actually a real place in Kent that they shot that is a castle with that fireplace on the ground that huge fireplace that's real but I want one of those let's go All right, I want to go one day while on break from shooting Elways took an ATV ride around the countryside and ended up breaking his big toe, which he hid <laughs> from production. And actually, you know who he was on the ATV ride with? Andre, Andre the Giant. Giant. Andre I the Giant. guessed yeah. that. I guessed it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so in the scene in which he's disguised as the Dread Pirate Roberts, and he tells Buttercup that life is pain, and as he stands up, you can actually see him leaning on his right leg because of that injury, which he <laughs> hid from everyone. Anybody who says otherwise is trying to sell you something. <laughs> Uh, anything else you have on the filming before we talk about music and the re- film's release? I just, I really love that everyone was so into it to the point that they didn't use a whole lot of stunt people for it. That when he, when Elwes jumps into the quicksand and the fire swamp, he did that stunt. That's wild, And man. there was a trap really door. Crazy. Yes, there's a trap door underneath a layer of sand. And then there was foam padding underneath. So originally the direction called for Wesley to jump in feet first after Buttercup. But Elwes argued that this wasn't particularly heroic. So switching up the direction was a risky move. If the trap door wasn't opened at exactly the right instant, Elwes risked hitting his head into the floor or breaking his neck. And um, so first they did, of course, have the stunt double do it first to show him how to do it Mm -hmm. properly. And then he did it on the first take. So what you see in the movie is him 
trying that for the first time. Which is honestly often the role of the stunt double um, to do the scene a few times before the actor, if the actor wants to do it, which can turn both ways. Sometimes the actor's ego makes them want to do a scene that they cannot do. Right. But I think Elwes was fully capable of doing that. So So live. I know. And also that Andre the Giant, apparently it was always cold and... Robin Wright was always cold. So when Buttercup is kidnapped on the Derbyshire Moors and Wright couldn't stop shivering, Elways recalls how Andre, sweetheart of a man that he was, would use one of his hands as a hat on top of Robin's head. Oh yeah, because he was over. He was very hot all the time. Yes. Being a so giant. she said yeah. it was like having a giant water bottle on top of her head Aww, that so would cute. warm her up. That's amazing. And you just look at his man, his hands. Or well, just... Reiner said he always looked forward to, to seeing him on set every day because he would get a handshake with him and he would just watch his hand disappear into Andre's hand. He thought it was so cool. And Carrie so... Elwes <laughs> says to Google the image Andre the Giant beer can to see yeah. how insane his hands are. Nuts. Um, yeah. Last thing I will say is all I can think about in that quicksand scene is whoever's holding the trap door and the cold sweat they must have been breaking <laughs> out into. Terrified. Because at that point, at that point of the movie, he couldn't get hurt. They didn't have the money for him to get hurt, which is also why he hid breaking his toe because yeah. he knew that they didn't have the money and he was worried that he was going to lose the job. Right. So the music, of course, done by Mark Knopfler. I of love his life. Dire Straits. It's not a bad song. It's maybe not for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> dire Straits, okay. money for nothing. We are the Sultans of, of Sweden. We're just like the Dire Straits. Absolutely. He did it on the one condition that the baseball cap Reiner's character wore in This Is Spinal Tap be seen in Fred Savage's character's bedroom, uh, which he later said he was just joking about. But Reiner did manage to get a replica of it made since he no longer had it. It's because Mark Knopfler was obsessed with This Is Spinal Tap. Also also on Fred Savage's wall, we noticed last night is a very weird demonic Santa Claus. Yeah. Which I think we should check out. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I really love the set deck of his room. I think they had a lot of fun with Mm -hmm. it. And also, which I didn't realize, and it does make me sad because I feel like it should have been up for more, um, that the storybook Love, which was written and performed by Willie DeVille and Mark Knopfler. It was nominated for an Academy Award. It was nominated for an Academy Award. It was the only nomination that they got, and it was for Best Original Mm -hmm. Song, and it lost to, uh, which does make sense, I've had the time of my life well, from yeah. Dirty Dancing. Uh, of course. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, because it's not the best song I understand. It's almost like they had the theme and then he just put some words on top of it quickly. But if you think of it, the rest of the music is all offshoots of the song just bit done with like synthesizers in different oh, yeah. ways throughout the rest of the movie. And it I think was, isn't it that way though? Isn't it the reverse that they put, they made the themes and then yes. he just like put words on it? Yes, pretty much. Yeah. I, th- I think it's really what happened. <laughs> and I understand why, um, not to call him out again, why Jeff was like, I never realized, I heard this song. I never, But it's because I would watch it on VHS and I would watch it all the way through and I liked the song so I would always leave it on and um, he had never really listened to it before which is why he was uh, making fun of it. Wow. Their love is like a storybook story. (laughs) I love this quote from Mandy Patinkin. It makes me cry. I don't know if it'll make me cry but we'll see. <clears throat> Ooh, it makes is me it lie? Oh it no, I've got another one that made me cry Ooh. about uh, also by Mandy Patinkin. I think it's a different one. He's so great. I just love him. But he said this. 
I'll never forget the first screening. Everyone came to LA on their own dime to see a rough cut. Gilda Radner was there with Gene Wilder. Mm. Mel Brooks was there. All these people Rob grew up with. I sat with my wife watching the film, and at the end, I was crying. My wife said, what's the matter? I said, I never dreamed I would get to be in anything like this. Aww. I love Mandy Patinkin. Apparently, he said he watched the This was a recent interview. He watched the movie again, and the his last words... I've been in the revenge business so long. Now that it's over, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. And he heard them quite differently. He says, as a young man, I think I was in a bit of the revenge business for too many years of my life. And you know, somewhere in the past 10 years, I stopped being so angry and started being a little more grateful, literally for the sunrise and the sunsets and my kids and my family and the gifts I've been given. And then I saw that movie, the end of the movie. I didn't see the whole thing. I just caught the end of it. And I heard that line. And as a young man, I remember saying it. I went back and looked at my script and to see what notes I'd put in and really didn't have any notes for that line. I just said it. And I didn't realize what I was saying. And then I heard it as a grown-up or whatever you want to call me. And it, it means everything to me today. Oh. And I love that. I love that that's he, so like, in going back. And the fact that he kept the script. Which that's like that's so cool. Yeah. So the weird thing is, and I did not realize this, this is always one of those weird hindsight things. You're like, how this movie did not do all that well no. in the box office. And Rob Reiner had this to say about it: the studio never knew how to market it. We literally never had mm-hmm. a trailer. They tried to sell it as a zany comedy. I remember having this conversation with Barry Diller, who was the head of Fox at the time. I was screaming at him. I said, Barry, I don't want to have a Wizard of Oz because then with the Wizard of Oz, because when the Wizard of Oz came out, it was a disaster. Nobody liked it and it didn't do well. But I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Rob, don't let anybody ever hear you say that. You'd be so happy to have a Wizard of Oz. He was right, of course. It takes time sometimes for these kinds of oddball movies to find an audience, but an audience it would find. It definitely is uh, video. Especially with John Gotti. Apparently, many years ago, the Princess Bride director Rob Reiner was out at a yes. restaurant in Little Italy when in walked Gotti and a crew of six henchmen. Reiner finished his meal and walked outside, coming across one of the wise guys standing in front of a limo. Hey, the mobster yelled at Reiner. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Then he chuckled and said, The Princess Bride. I love that movie. Man. And it was John Gotti. That is the only time you hear from that guy and then you don't yeah. immediately start running. Yes. Exactly. No. But I think you speak towards something so important about the enduring quality of this film and that is that it is so damn quotable to the point where I have a quote from so many of the people involved in this film about how much people quote the lines of them. It is really fantastic. Patinkin says... Not a day goes by where somebody doesn't come up and ask, can you say the line? And I say it with the greatest joy in the world. I'll often whisper it into a little kid's ear so he's not looking at my face, so he just hears my voice because I don't want to mess up the magic. I love Mandy But Maybe don't get too close to the kid's face. (laughs) Yeah, but he's such a jolly man. He loves his kids. I know. Uh, I love this from Carol Kane to have a different perspective on it. Every time someone says to me, aren't you the one from The Princess Bride? I have to think several times about how I feel about being recognized (laughs) because I think I was like 36 or something at the time we made it. And I think, what does this mean? Am I growing into that face? Is Valerie <laughs> creeping into my everyday face now? I'm always honored, but I'm also like, hmm, how should I feel about this? <laughs> I think it's so good. 
And then you, while it's Sean, my heart goes out to him. It's safe to say that three days don't go by without some, somebody shouting inconceivable to me in the street. Many of them not particularly imagining that anyone else on earth had ever thought of doing it before. <laughs> it's like when people find out that my initials are Jay-Z. And they're like, yeah. like Jay-Z, like Jay-Z. And I'm just like, yep. <laughs> That's it. Yep. What else do you say about that? Yep. Yes. Right. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Billy Crystal uh, is the last one I have for this. I think every time I'm out, someone will either say to me, you look marvelous, or have fun storming the castle. And when I get have fun storming the castle and they ask for an autograph, I know they're special people, so I'll use my best penmanship. I do love that the cast is openly against a sequel. William Goldman yeah. started writing it <laughs> and, and also against a reboot as well. Yeah. And yeah. they are vocal it about it. Leave Good. it alone. This is not the one. I, I, I don't know how I feel, but um, the William Goldman was working on a version of The Princess Bride, the musical, since 2006. Last year, apparently, they are getting it up on its feet, and it was supposed to come out this year, but of course this year is over. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if um, if it is going to end up happening, and I also don't know how I feel about it. I yeah, only no. support it if they the only song in it is... Your love is like, and they just do it every ten minutes. I would be fine with that. I think it make to the point that people are begging, begging for it to be over. Uh, I so I do enjoy the fact that I think a lot of people, when they talk about reboots and stuff like that, the people that were in the original, like you know, I guess we'll have to say all of them are like, no, 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 no. please don't do that. Begging that, like that, if if William Goldman was still alive, that if he could write it, I guess it would be fine. But even (sighs) actor Carrie Elway says there's a shortage of perfect movies in this world. It would be a pity to damage this one. Oh, like her boobies. Yeah, like her boobies. Like her boobies. I love it. Uh, All right. I think that's our episode on The Princess Bride. Check us out on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash page seven podcast. You can find me on Twitch with Jackie on Friday nights, twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Uh, Fantastic stuff going on over there. And by fantastic, I mean drunk. Natalie. Yes. (laughs) We're at page seven LPN and I'm at the Natty Jean. And check out all the episodes of Trollville up on YouTube. Noise. And I'm Jackie Zabrowski. And please check out, if you wish, as you wish, Inconceivable Tales from the Making of the Princess Bride. I'm telling you, the audiobook is amazing. And watch that Andre the Giant documentary. Yes. It will make you cry. I love you guys. You can follow me on Instagram at jackthatworm. And we will talk to you next week. Bye, Bye, everybody. Bye. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. 